0: Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy.
1: We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts: Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode two hundred and eleven, recorded for May third, twenty twenty-three. The Cloud Pod finally groks observability. Good evening, Jonathan, Ryan, and Matthew. How's it going?
2: Good. How are you guys?
1: Eh, it's another Wednesday, so not quite Friday, not Monday. So meh. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. I had a day of Ruby gems, so take oh. that, hey Will.
1: Um, I was yeah. going to ask you what you were doing with Ruby earlier, but then you crossed out Ruby and replaced it with the word uh, the S <laughs> word, and I was like, mm, okay, well, that's not going to ask. That was all I needed to know about your day. Yep. <laughs> Ruby
3: dependency hell is just, you know, I think that's how I spent a good like two or three years. <laughs>
1: I mean, I, it's probably how I feel about dealing with CPAN dependencies and <laughs> Perl modules. Uh-huh. Um, that is but, still worse for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty bad. I can't. I,
2: yeah. Yeah, but then you get the stuff pinned, and then you have to figure out what the new version is to repin stuff in Ruby. And every time I've ever had to deal with it, I'm like, I'm I'm good. Somebody somebody else deal with this.
1: See, I mean, CPAN is just as bad because uh, you know the dependencies will change and update and then break itself, which is always fun. So. Um, yeah, I, I, Ruby Gems has its own issues. I've had my own scars, but I would take it over CPAN any day of the week. <laughs> All right. Well, again, I want to pimp the FinOps X Foundation Conference. This is the FinOps Foundation annual user conference uh, for members of the FinOps Foundation. Uh, they will, of course, be uh, in San Diego doing all of the great things uh, June 29th through the 30th. They uh, also have a party on an aircraft carrier. If you always wanted to go have a party on an aircraft carrier, this is the place to do it. Uh, and you can learn all kinds of things about FinOps and FinOps best practices uh, and how you can save your company lots of money, which may be important in these economic times with interest rates being raised another uh, quarter point today. So <laughs> there you go. Uh, and again, I will be there. Uh, i will be around the show floor i'll be in different rooms and such and i will tweet where i'm at so you can come find me and i will have some stickers uh although i'm trying to negotiate a sticker table at phenom sex so i don't have to do that all the time but at least uh, i'll be there and you can meet me and say hello and uh, maybe some others will be there too we'll see so that is coming up very soon uh june is only a month away (laughs) because it just became may so uh, i don't know (laughs) where the year is going but it's moving very quickly
3: yeah, I still think time is not exactly passing, like, literally anymore. I, I don't I don't quite understand it, but,
1: yeah, just nothing makes sense. Yes, nothing makes sense. All right, well, let's talk about New Relic, uh, who we had a couple of weeks ago, uh, someone from New Relic on the pod, uh, talking about all things observability. Uh, and, uh, you know, at the time when we were setting up that interview, uh, they mentioned, you know, we said, well, is there any you know, thing that you like to pimp as a new product? And they did mention, well, we have something, but we're not ready to talk about it. Not uh, quite yet. And we said, "Oh, okay," and we just did a normal, great show on uh, observability, which was good. But uh, they are back with their actual announcement now, uh, and they're throwing their hat into the AI ring with a language learning model uh, for their new generative AI assistant for observability called Grok. Grok allows you to use a large language model to help engineers use natural language to perform many routine tasks in New Relic, think uh, setting up instrumentation, building reports, or managing accounts. Uh, engineers can sift through the data more easily and comb through their unified telemetry data without having to write complex queries. Uh, although they're not really that complex in New Relic, because NRQL, which is their query language, is pretty simple. Uh, but uh, if they are struggling, you can now just ask using language, uh, what's wrong with my app, <laughs> which would be great uh, to solve. There's a quote here from the New Relic Chief Product Officer at Manav Karana. Observability tools exist to serve the DevOps and DevSecOps movements. Engineers use observability tools to get the data they need to operate and secure the software they build. And the reality, however, is that it's hard for every engineer to translate a question they have into a data model, sift through their tools to find the right data, and then translate data back into an insight and natural language. That's why DevSecOps practices are lagging behind all the innovation in observability tooling. But now, with generative AI, there will be an explosion of new software development in a completely different way, creating even more complexity to operate and secure software. Uh, so they are the first, but not probably not the last, observability team to do something with AI. And all I can say is a stranger in a strange land, indeed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's funny they called out specifically the uh, DevSecOps, though, as a, as a team that needed this kind
1: of assistance. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Well, I mean, I think we, we you know, DevSecOps in, as a practice is really still pretty immature. Um, where, you know, I think the DevOps movement was a little bit more active because it was also the time we we're doing web scale and we were doing a bunch of things. And so there was a lot more momentum behind DevOps. And I feel like DevSecOps, while there's momentum in certain pockets, it does not feel as widespread as DevOps did.
2: It's definitely gaining, I think. You know, the more people I talk to, it's starting to come up more on sales pitches and emails and everything along those lines. It definitely has the buzzword bingo effect, you know, around right now. It's so it's actually interesting to see if they're going to try to get more people to leverage the tool from a more security standpoint than you know from their original native of just being an API.
3: Yeah, I think SecOps in general suffers from a little bit of, you know, being reactionary. Yeah. And so trying to combine that with like sort of DevOps and, and shifting that left into the build and application pipelines kind of suffers, right? Like traditionally SecOps teams are are reviewing, you know, incoming requests, looking for anomalies, we're doing, you know, forensic investigation, Um not as much, you know. Other than like, you know, getting some of these tools into build pipelines and other things like that,
0: there really hasn't been a lot of momentum. What do you think the driver came for uh, for DevSecOps? Was it was it from engineering, or was it a push from the like the SecOps side of side of things? I mean, I, I'm sure you know we're not the only team in the world who's been frustrated with uh, sort of security requirements being dropped to the last second right before a product release, and, and so Dev, DevSecOps kind of solves that by. By shifting all that work um, much earlier in the process, so I I guess uh, I like it as a methodology.
1: Yeah, I think it, you know shift left became kind of the big thing, and you got to get security born built into your pipeline. And we had supply chain of vulnerabilities with you know Solar Winds. I think that's probably where a lot of the DevSecOps stuff kind of started. Was around as a reaction, getting reactionary security people uh, to uh, you know what happened at Solar Winds and how do we start really fixing our supply chain. And How do we start doing that, and what do we call that? And then that's where I think DevSecOps kind of came from. Um, you know, it's broadened out just like DevOps has legs of its own, and it means a lot of things now. I think DevSecOps kind of falls into that same camp, but I think initially it was shift left and and pipeline security for your CI/CD. Um, and you know, in the latest version of uh, the Unicorn Project and the Phoenix Project, the, the new one is all about compliance. Uh, and I'm forgetting the name of it at this moment, but uh,
2: Investor Unlimited.
1: Yes, that's it. Investor Unlimited. Um, you know, they actually talk about the fact that you know <laughs> Dev and Ops got together and ran away and left security behind, and uh, how that actually caused some issues. And so, it's actually one of the parts of that book I thought was most interesting uh, was you read through Investor Unlimited.
2: Yeah, one of the things I remember from that book, right around that same point when they were talking about that, was you know DevOps broke a lot of security practices of like. You know, your developers do it, your sysops people deploy it, and now all of a sudden, you have pipelines that handle it all for you. So it broke a lot of compliance. and So that's kind of you know another interesting fact of that book. Hmm.
1: Yep. I'm glad we all grok that. That's good. Let's <laughs> 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 see if we can grok the rest of the stories this week. Uh, AWS is up first with a provisioned capacity for Athena This allows you to provision capacity in advance to allow you to run your Athena-based queries uh, in a way against S3 and other uh, cloud data sources. And with the dedicated queries, you can now use a new workload management feature to prioritize, control, and scale your most important queries, paying only for the capacity you have provisioned. Uh, Apparently, this is requested quite often by customers, and the customer scenarios that they highlight in the article are uh, when running large volumes of queries, uh, you sometimes experience queuing which might slow down your app or business process. Uh, And to address this, customers would then create a query prioritization mechanism to help get the highest priority queues run first at the price of building and maintaining code or business process outside of Athena, or as Amazon typically calls it, undifferentiated heavy lifting. Uh, Customers complained it was difficult to forecast your Athena costs. And as Athena uh, charges by volumes of scanned data, which is often difficult to predict as it depends on the size of your data set, the construction of the query, and the storage form of the data, our FinOps friends were all very unhappy. To solve this, they are introducing the capability to provision dedicated query processing capacity at scale. And with provision capacity, you can provision a dedicated set of compute resources to run your queries. And this always-on capacity can serve your business-critical queries with near-zero latency and no queuing. Uh, It gives you control over your workload performance features such as cost, concurrency, and query prioritization. Similar to other provision capacity services, you only pay for the capacity provision, not for the actual usage. This makes your bills predictable, and you do not have to limit your user queries to stay within your monthly budget. You uh, reserve the capacity in data processing units, or DPUs. A single DPU is equivalent to 4 vCPU and 16 gigs of RAM. And the minimum capacity you may provision is 24 DPU for 8 hours. This new provision capacity for Athena is ideal for those of you running any volume of queries. But the sweet spot to start using provision capacity is when you spend $100 or more on your Athena bill. Uh, Again, some pricing caveats here to keep in mind. Minimum of 8 hours, and you pay per minute afterwards. Uh, You can release the capacity at any time. If you cancel within the eight hours, you pay for the full eight hours. But capacity is deallocated as soon as the current running queries are terminated, and it costs you $0.30 cents per DPU hour build per minute.
0: $100 is pretty easy to reach with Athena,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I, I would think. I mean, that's that's a, that's a pretty low price point to, to break even. When I first read the the post, I was like, this is just a highlights the, the, the failure of serverless and and uh, having to go back to the provision model kind of thing. And then I kind of came around to the realization that it, it's the, the advantage in in being able to like limit your exposure to cost um, and, and kind of use that provision capacity to control your sort of the SLA around running queries is actually pretty useful. I mean, I, I think I, I kind of like to find like a middle ground where, you can just literally set a, a maximum maximum concurrency for Athena without paying for provision capacity up front to say, okay, don't let me spend more than this, but I still want to use it from the serverless pool kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, that'd be quota management with enforcement, which they've never really done. They always mm-hmm. give you quotas that they just alert you on. I get an email every month from the CloudPod account that it's over budget. because <laughs> It doesn't factor in uh, RIs still. But that's okay. <laughs>
3: yeah, I mean, they do publish an event to CloudWatch Event Bus, so you can easily, you know, you can have anything
0: be triggered by that event. True. Yeah.
3: Turn off everything in the account.
0: I mean, I guess it's it's great as, as an ops team to, to be able to take that data and, and you know present it to the finance team and say, okay, well, th- this is the this is the goal, this is the SLA for for these queries in our application. We can't meet this unless you give us an extra X many dollars in the budget for the service.
1: Yeah, or so. you you take the side of it, hey, I only have this many DPUs that I've allocated to the account, and so then you force queuing and, and mechanisms based on the prioritization queue you built out, so maybe you're okay with that. and Yeah, you offer them, well, if you want to pay more money, you can have faster processing. Um, I can see how th- this makes a lot of sense in a SaaS app, especially one that's potentially you know querying different data sources that aren't owned by a company, because what would prevent you from embedding a thing into your product Customer goes and points it at their S3 bucket that has you know 25 petabytes of data in it, and runs you know this tool and gets data out of it. But now all of a sudden you have a bill that's very large based on all that data consumption, uh, that could be probably problematic. So uh, you know it's nice to see this though because you know Presto has a lot of these capabilities built into it, and and really Athena is Presto under the hood, but without all the sharp edges uh, or different sharp edges, I guess <laughs> maybe the right word to say. But uh, you know so it's nice to see some of those things getting more exposure through the native service now. Yeah, and
0: eight hours is nice too because I mean, eight hours is a is a business day, yeah. Effectively, so turn it on in the morning, turn it off in the night, pay for um, on demand queries outside those core hours. It seems that's great.
2: Next up, auto scaling.
1: Yeah. yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I'm like next, we're gonna have machine learning to help you optimize your DPUs and auto scaling for it, mm-hmm. and there'll be all kinds of things coming in the next you know year they can announce. So,
3: yeah, I do hope this is you know easy to orchestrate you know, for, for those teams. Cause yeah, the, just the, you know, the turn it off in the morning, turn it off at night. Like that can be trickier than people realize.
2: Yeah. I've definitely hit edges around many different of Amazon services, trying to scale them up and down depending on time of day, things that take different amounts of time to run. And yeah. So I'm hoping that it is nice and simple or, you know, they put together a nice, easy, And dare I say, cloud formation template for somebody just to launch that's, you know, just says given time scale up, given time scale down, or Terraform module, which is what I would prefer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like a a CloudWatch um, time based action up and down would be awesome. Yeah. It could
1: work really well. All right. Well, the next one, uh, AWS Compute Optimizer identifies and filters Microsoft SQL Server workloads, which I had to read three times to understand that this is not just Compute Optimizer telling you to kill all of your SQL Server workloads or at least hide the bill from your optimizer. Um, But AWS Compute Optimizer now supports inferred workload types by filtering on the Amazon EC2 instance recommendations. And this inferred workload type features, utilizes ML and automatically detects the applications that might be running on your AWS resources. Um, When they say ML here, I assume they mean we had a regex that basically said, oh, hey, your EC2 instance is using a Microsoft with SQL Server license included, or that it's an EC2 instance that potentially has an inbound port on port 1433, which would be Microsoft SQL Server. (laughs) So I'm not really sure how much ML is actually there, but uh, it's a nice idea, and I do like the idea of being able to say, hey, this is not a normal type of server. You You should use a different method of optimization for this type of server than others. Uh, which is nice. So I, I appreciate the effort, although the terrible headline, and then also uh, calling that ML just feels a little little weak sauce.
0: The main mosses than that because they they already will report on EC2 instances running things like Bitcoin mining and stuff like that, which they they detect heuristically at the hypervisor level. So perhaps perhaps there's a little bit more ML gone
2: into uh, analyzing workloads. Could also be you know monitoring the network traffic type of thing too.
1: That's what I was saying. Like, you know, if you're using port 1433, like that's pretty obvious that you're probably using Microsoft SQL Server, unless you're using a non-standard port, um, which is, you know, in my opinion, security through obscurity, anyways. <laughs> so, you know, it's not really adding a lot of value.
3: I really did just read this as, you know, optimizers just no longer going to target Microsoft SQL workloads. Like, it's just going to exclude them from any optimization.
2: That's results. the way I read it too. <laughs> I thought it was just ignoring everything <laughs> that was SQL related. And Their next response yeah. is. Here's Aurora Postgres with uh, Babelfish. Good luck. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. You've clearly made some bad choices. <laughs> yeah.
0: The, re- the report says now, under normal circumstances, we'd recommend this. But since you're running SQL Server, we would. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <All> <laughs> yeah, you're, you're out of luck.
1: <laughs> I mean, once they have this data, though, they could probably also show, like, hey, if you move to Aurora on Postgres, like you could save some money. <laughs> uh, so they could you know make future recommendations based on the fact that they know that it's a SQL Server and they know what the comp- compute capacity is. but um, yeah, that could be the next level of this. But yeah, the headline headline was the what got me the most in this article. I'm like, that's just really poorly worded. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to our friends at Google. Uh, they are offering you... Oh, sorry. Well, first of all, I want you to know this article says that Google's number one major priority is optimizing your costs. Because they said it in this blog post. I want you to know that. It's right there, the first sentence. I'm going to use it with my sales rep. See how it works. <laughs> um, but anyways they are committed to so much committed to optimizing your costs that they are announcing the general availability of cuds uh, which are committed use discounts not for cows uh for red hat enterprise linux and red hat enterprise linux for sap if you run consistent and predictable workloads on red hat linux uh you can now save up to 24 percent compared to your on-demand or pay-as-you-go pricing uh, once your commitment is created your red hat base system will now automatically receive the discount and when your commitment runs out, you'll just ne- you'll just uh, get on-demand pricing, which will be a surprise bill for you later. Uh, and once you are in an active commit, you cannot cancel or edit. So please make that commitment with uh, care and thought.
0: Yeah, and I think this is cost savings, like having to commit to something for twelve months at a time.
1: Yes, <laughs> it's great savings.
0: <laughs> I mean, if you're already running
3: SAP on Red Hat in, in a you know, on a cloud hypervisor, like at, at least you have this button. Be like, we're yeah, trying, we're trying to save money.
2: Here's four million dollars. We saved you five dollars. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. As, as a person who has an SAP on Google bill, uh-huh. not because we run SAP, but because we develop against it, uh, yeah, this savings is welcome. I'll take it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so thank you for this. <laughs> yeah.
3: You're not doing that by choice,
1: right? Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but I appreciate that you're trying, so you know, <laughs> clearly you care. Uh, well, Google's also announcing Cloud Storage Fuse and the GKE CSI driver for AI ML workloads. Uh, this comes very closely after Amazon announced the same thing. <laughs> GCP talks about how many of their customers are leveraging Kubernetes with stateful workloads and data on Kubernetes. Customers are looking for more integrated solutions across compute and storage, though. And so they have developed the Cloud Storage Fuse which uh, puts objects in cloud storage buckets, can be accessed as files mounted as local file system, providing a frictionless experience for applications that need file system semantics, as long as you don't try to actually do file things on them. Cloud Storage Fuse is available today in preview with official Google support, and the Fuse capability supports GCS, providing portability, massive scale streaming data support, built-in support for GKE standard and autopilot, non-privileged access, and authenticating out-of-the-box and extensive support for accelerators to make your life easier. I thought the S3 announcement was
3: specifically not a fuse. Like it was mounted S3 objects in the file system
1: for sure. But yeah, But I mean, they, they've they, had that for a while, right? Yeah, S3 fuse is, is for a while, but theirs is not S3 fuse, but based on S3 fuse, I think is how Amazon described it. Uh, hmm. That way they could control it a little bit more. Because like, I think S3 fuse does more things than Amazon wants to allow you to. Uh, so there, there's a little strip down.
0: They're very similar tools. To, 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 yeah. This this one to the Amazon one, I mean, they're still no POSIX compliant. They still don't support a lot of um, important things like concurrency controls or you know, protections for writing the same file at the same time. It's it's basically the same thing.
1: I think the Amazon version's only read-only right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't recall seeing in this particular article that it was read-only right now, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Mm-hmm.
3: This is a uh, another thing that's going to blow up in my face when you make me run. SQL servers
2: on Kubernetes. Well, I wouldn't use that. <laughs> so many things wrong with that statement.
1: We <laughs> Justin as a thing someday, <laughs> and that thing is
3: going to be
2: swearing.
1: Might be the story of how Justin got fired.
2: <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how you can make this worse. <laughs> like I, I'm, I'm really working on I mean, that. <laughs>
1: I mean, the savings speak for
2: themselves. <laughs> yeah. So you run it on a spot instance. Got it. <laughs> no, no,
1: no. Because you, you, know, you have to remember that you don't have shared storage on on the cloud and most cloud providers. And so your problem is that you use this terrible technology from Microsoft called uh, availability groups. Uh, and so... You end up spinning up a bunch of servers with a bunch of storage and you have to replicate the databases and unfortunately you can only replicate so many schemas at one time which means that you have a lot of server SQL server sprawl. So what you need is you need virtualization but no one wants to run VMware on the cloud. So what's your next best option? Of course, Kubernetes. <laughs> so, And by going down this path you can save yourself a lot of money in both Windows licensing if you can get SQL on Linux to work uh, as well as potentially uh, DR and standby nodes that you don't want to use because you have to pay for SQL Server licensing, anyways. So yes, it's a it's an experiment we're playing with that <laughs> no one no one else agrees with me is a good no one. no. no. <laughs> <laughs> well, come to find out, Matt, your uh, your SQL servers on Azure are probably running on
2: Kubernetes. Yeah, but it's not my problem <laughs> when they break. It's Azure's problem <laughs> when they break. Probably so.
1: Yes, And they probably are Windows based, which I don't want to do. So,
0: Yeah, he did ask how it could be made worse. Windows containers running SQL Server. <laughs> there, you
1: yeah.
2: there you go. There you yeah, go. There you go. <laughs> there you go. That's it. Yeah. I've now successfully been uh, yes. <laughs> destroyed. Got it. Uh, yeah.
1: So if, if any of our listeners have done SQL Server on Kubernetes at any level of scale and either failed horribly or were successful, I'd love to hear from you. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs>
3: so, Save <laughs> me.
1: At the Let me know if this is a terrible idea. I would love to hear how yeah. I should not do this.
2: They did <laughs> so. have a customer at one point that was running MySQL inside their Kubernetes cluster. And then they were essentially just running backups every hour. So when it died, it yeah. ate, just had a process that restored from backup. And their RPO was...
1: I mean if you have a data recovery yeah. RTO of an hour, yeah. then
2: that's awesome. <laughs> and that was their way of doing it and I never understood it still.
3: Yeah.
1: I don't I don't have that luxury. I need more slightly better, but uh, I have mm-hmm. I have an Archivell- Archivellian plan of how I would make this work, but uh, I haven't quite proven it yet. So I have doubters on the team who are not on board with my plans.
3: So. Uh, I'll carry it out, but only only mostly out of spite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is why I like Ryan. Because he'll do what? it.
1: Just rub it in my face that it failed.
3: You know, I'll later. give it my
1: all yeah.
0: while, while sort of just snidely looking at it. See what you made me do?
1: Yeah, exactly. I'll remember you for this.
0: That's, and while people are emailing in, you know, their use cases for Kubernetes on uh, SQL Server on Kubernetes, Justin also likes videos of natural disasters and train
1: wrecks. I do, I do. That's true. Yeah. That's high, those tires burning. That's, that's soothing. Tire fire all day long. All right. Let's move on to Azure. Speaking of tire fires. <laughs> good segue <laughs> I know, nice I just came up with it on the yeah, fly well done Azure virtual desktops got uh, get a lot of enhancements this week based on apparently the customer's top needs uh, or like I have to think whoever paid the most money so some of the new features for Azure virtual desktops are FS logic profiles for Azure AD uh, join VMs and Azure virtual desktop which I had to look up what FS logics was which is apparently a more uh, fancy version of your desktop experience on a, v, on a RDP thing so apparently that's hmm. how they fixed uh you know, not having a usual desktop interface on VMs is the FS Logics. Uh, there's apparently a bug fix which they're so excited about, which is the FS Logic 2210 bug. Uh, this will allow for VHD compaction during the sign-out phase, reducing the amount of storage for your employee profiles. The Azure Virtual Desktop Insights at scale. The RDP short path for public networks using the stun protocol, uh, which makes it you use UDP or TCP. Uh, to get your connectivity much, much faster for your streaming needs. Symmetric NAT support for Azure Short Path, watermarking on Azure VD, so all those people copying confidential classified information off their Azure Virtual Desktop will now be watermarked. Be careful. Private link for Azure Virtual Desktop and Microsoft Teams, application window sharing, which is such an awesome feature because basically allows you in Teams inside your Virtual Desktop to actually pick a window inside the desktop to share, which I find a hilarious bug as well. which uh, just <laughs> makes you wonder... What other horrible bugs live inside of Azure Virtual Desktop? If that was a bug that needs to be fixed.
3: Yeah, Alex, that one. Yeah, that one's probably rough.
2: <laughs> I just want to know what they're watermarking on your desktop. Is it like your name that's like right there, or like what? Like what probably, is it? Yeah. Or I hope so. I hope it's some sort of identifying
3: information on yeah, which workstation it is or something, so it could be traced back. Not
2: just Microsoft Azure. It's it's a marketing ploy. I hope <laughs> yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway, every screenshot you get has Microsoft Azure in the background so everyone knows you're using Azure yeah. it's not a bad idea actually clever, <laughs> you should work in marketing
0: have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS GCP Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with the juice bar initiative stalled because you're having trouble hiring well I have a simple solution Volcone Consulting Foghorn Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Falcorn certified AWS, GCP and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimised cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the Cloud Pods sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul, and they bring their own juice.
1: Uh, and then next up, for those of you who like to burn all of your money while using <laughs> firewalls on Azure, they now support the virtual WAN with its first SaaS offering, which comes from dun 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 Alto Networks, where you can subscribe Mm -hmm. to the Cloud Next Generation Firewall. Uh, This is in preview. Uh, You can run the Pan Network uh, Next Generation Firewall on Azure using a SaaS offering in the Azure Virtual WAN. The VLAN Networking as a Service brings networking, security, and routing functionalities together to simplify networking in Azure. With ease of use and simplicity built in, the Virtual WAN is a one-stop shop to connect, protect, route, and monitor your wireless LAN. Uh, I have a couple quotes here from Julia Lewis, president of Microsoft Developer Division at Microsoft. At Microsoft, we are dedicated to ensuring that Microsoft Azure is the most trusted and secure cloud platform. With the preview release of the Palo Alto Network Cloud's Network Next Generation Firewall for Azure, we're pleased to expand our ecosystem of native ISV solutions and provide customers and developers with more options to meet their security needs. This collaboration between Palo Alto Networks and Microsoft combines the scalability and reliability of Azure with Palo Alto Networks' expertise to help safeguard our customers against the latest threats. And to respond to that, Lee Clare, Chief Product Officer of Palo Alto Networks, had to say, more and more of our customers are running their business-critical applications in Azure and are looking to us to help keep those workloads secure, um, also to keep us making money. With Cloud Next Generation Firewall for Azure, we are excited to combine Palo Alto Network's best-in-class security with the scalability and reliability of Azure to provide our mutual customers the ability to run their applications with confidence. And as a manage Azure-native ISP service, we are proud to deliver the ease-of-use customers expect from a cloud-native experience. This is not cloud-native, <laughs> but
2: okay. This is the opposite of cloud-native. <laughs>
3: Well, it's it's at least not a virtual device True. plugged into your network and just sort of duct taped to the outside saying, you know, like, look, security. You know, so if you're going to use Palo Alto and, you know, for these services, maybe you've already got a whole bunch of investment for an on-prem worksite or, you know, whatever. Like, at least this is a path forward that I could, it's got some scalability. I'm hoping it's got a deep integration that's beyond the, the virtualization presentation layer. And, you know, you've got your, near and dear familiar, you know, Palo Alto console to configure this
0: in. Yeah, on one <laughs> hand, I kind of feel like we shouldn't need things like this and that the routing and firewalling and the things that Palo Alto appliances provide should actually be provided by the cloud platforms natively. On the other hand, I kind of like the idea of having, like, pluggable solutions like this to to replace the the cloud native offerings. I'll, I'll, mm-hmm. I'm happy that um, Azure actually opened it open up their system in a way that lets the third party come along and, and deliver these kind of services.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think in most cases, you know, the cloud providers provide at least some functionality and, you know, there's always going to be R&D and usability and, you know, either APIs or how, how it's presented or, you know, especially with something that's doing any kind of inspection, looking for like security signatures or or something along those lines. Like there's a lot that can be customized that could be a differentiator between you know, a native service in and Azure and, and Palo Alto providing their
2: own. I mean, I really hope that Palo Alto does a better job, you know, at the packet inspection and all the more security things than Microsoft does. You know, it's their core competency. They really should be able to do it better than, you know, a cloud provider that's adding on this, adding this on as a service. You know, in, in theory, you should be paying a premium for that, which with Palo Alto, you're always paying a premium. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I think you just broke my brain a little bit. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> the thought of, like, I get what you're saying. Like, okay, so Palo Alto, this is what they do as a specialization and they should be the best at it and they should charge a premium for it. And then I'm like, but Azure has how many customers and how much data and like how much volume yeah. But they have to have better experience of scale and security. Yeah, and I, I now can't rationalize those two thoughts. So thank you for that and I appreciate it. That's going to keep yeah. me up tonight. <sighs> I actually think yeah. it's an
0: interesting multi-cloud story as well, because as much as we've kind of hopped on about how multi-cloud is not you know the best out the gate strategy, people do find themselves in that position through acquisitions or oh, yeah. other unfortunate circumstances. So being able to, you know, and, and we've talked about the cost of compliance and the cost of meeting all these requirements in multiple clouds. So mm-hmm. actually being able to deploy the same appliance and use mm-hmm. the same configuration and the same controls in all the clouds that, that you do See, business is yeah. probably actually well worth Um, investing
3: in yeah I mean think about it like a sophisticated provisioning you know automation that you have that's automatically doing sort of software-defined networking based on you know workflows and stuff and it's all coded against the Palo Alto APIs you know like it's a choice like you can refactor that and you can change it to either talk to that cloud native specific service it's got similar functionality or you know if it's just something you can point at a different endpoint awesome and you've got (laughs) money to burn because I can only imagine this is just all the monies. But
1: I mean, I also yeah. get the value of it for you know companies who are struggling to get to the cloud and they need to meet security requirements that are unchangeable because of inflexible security teams, they're like you must have a Palo Alto. Mm-hmm. Well, this is that's a nice option. I like. I mean, I, I do. I do appreciate the, the integration part of the story of this. It does. It does good, and it does give you you know solves a security problem that you may have had that you didn't be able to solve before. So that's a plus. All right. Uh, Well, this is our cloud journey series section of the show. Uh, And we are going to take a little sidestep here. So we would be talking about cloud native today. But um, there's a great uh, article that came out from HashiCorp. uh, HashiCorp's Gerald Yurden II. He had a great blog post about the need for platform teams to run like a product team. And this is very similar to some conversations that we've had here on the Cloud Pod many times um, about building services versus building uh, IT things that you know, aren't usable by APIs and all those things. So I thought it was good that we should maybe talk about this particular blog post because <clears throat> it, 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 it sings to my heart, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm going to start us off by a couple of little pieces here from the article. So uh, you know, first of all, they define what a platform team is. Uh, and platform team focuses on building and maintaining core systems and workflows for delivering infrastructure and other services to application teams. And since applications are on the foundation of infrastructure, supporting infrastructure is a big job and not only does platform engineering encompass what you would traditionally think of as infrastructure, virtual machines, compute clusters, and networking, it also includes all of the glue that binds the worlds of applications and infrastructures. This includes APIs, monitoring, CIC pipelines, credential management, and more, and all these things centralized under one umbrella compromise the platform and platform team. So that's where I want to start, you guys. What do you think?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, it was funny, my first thought on this is like, oh, this is like a, a new idea that, that should be communicated like I've been trying to work on this forever but I didn't realize that it was I guess not just some crazy harebrained thing that I was speaking about all the time
1: what I was telling you to do <laughs>
3: yeah <laughs> yeah like I love this model and I love the fact that that you know one of the first things that the other points out is it you know it's like these infrastructure focused teams are, uh, try, were becoming platform. Teams, whether they knew it or not, right? Because that's that's with how complex the business has become and, and how fast things need to move. That's the it's really the only answer. You're gonna have too many customers to sort of just run infrastructure
1: in a traditional way. I mean, you can do it. It just takes about a bajillion tickets mm-hmm. and about you know 30 armies of people who respond to those tickets and SLAs that are mm-hmm. make people cranky. So that's mm-hmm. how you do it. And it doesn't work at scale.
0: Yeah, I think those SLAs are the important thing for me because the, there's always the assumption if you're an infrastructure team or an operations team that you'll provide 100 uptime, you'll always be on call, you'll always jump on the, the the current need of the day. And I think the the move to the mindset that actually we're building platforms and development teams are, are our customers uh, sort of helps formalize the idea that actually this is a service and we do have an SLA. And you know, you are a customer, and we'll mm-hmm. we have to take. needs into consideration but also the needs of the rest of the business we also have it and security and finance we have all these different things and we can't just jump on anything you say just because you say it so it's i like the sort of formalization of of the process around what what this means really in in the the way that the platform teams um, provide the service to the business
3: yeah it really provides a great scaffolding for conversations between You know, uh, you know, a a platform or an operations-focused team and a development team. Because the minute it's sort of operations functionality that they're, you know, you know, there's an old model of throwing things over a wall. But there is sort of just an expectation that we've we've changed what the application needs, and so we ask you infrastructure teams to go provide that now. And our release schedule is our own thing that we coordinate with product and our customers. And so you have two weeks to deliver, right? And so this really changes that to this is just an integration application that the development ecosystem is operating on. And so it's got a current list of features that it supports. And if you need something out of that current list of features, then that's a request that needs to be made. There's multiple customers and that'll be prioritized and it gets communicated in a roadmap, right? It, makes, it brings all that language that we've been using to manage software and application development and starts putting it on top of infrastructure related things, which is fantastic.
2: It also means your engineering teams have to be able to articulate what they're trying to actually achieve and be willing to, you know, embrace the platform, um, which, from you know what I've seen in the past, always isn't the case. But if you get people that are willing to kind of jump in and you know work with you, especially if you're like in the MVP of a specific you know piece of your platform, you know it really can bring a lot of value to the company really fast.
1: Yeah. So the I'm going to save this article because the one thing that it advocates for is to. Uh, Go treat your platform. You know, have your platform team go treat um, your customers as customers, and get a product manager in place, which is something I've been saying for a long time. Is really kind of needed in a uh, moving to a platform cloud center of excellence type setup. Um, And so, you know, going out and interviewing your customers. And who are your customers? You may ask. Well, the software development teams that you've always Mm -hmm. hated. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's you know you had to break down these barriers. You had to get people out there and go out and talk to them. And like, what do I need, or what do they need? Um, to be successful in what they want to do, from you know increasing velocity, increasing cloud adoption, adopting cloud native, and how do you make that easy and opinionated and, and compliant with your requirements? Um, and that's where a product leader can actually really help you out a lot in this particular piece. So I, I've, I've quite often played this product leader mm-hmm. <laughs> in these type of scenarios because I can never convince anybody that we should have a product leader from product team. Uh, but you know this is really the right strategy in my mind. And you know, kind of there's some really great articles that they link to in here. Um, about, you know, the hybrid multi-cloud adoption case study from Alanco, who's a HashiCorp customer, uh, non-technical challenges of platform engineering. And so there's a lot of really great content in here. Um, but, you know, the messages are really aligned nicely to IT as a service and really delivering cloud-native and cloud of excellence in a way that is usable by your customers in a way that makes sense.
0: I think it could be quite a challenging transformation f- for for most businesses.
1: Um mm-hmm
0: because they are so because you know, people are so used to asking for something and well you're the opposite you, you have to give us what we want because we're building the thing that that, that serves our customers as a business and so i think even uh, having a product manager for, for the for the platform itself would be uh would be interesting because you know typically that's a very customer-facing role in the business's customers rather than an internal customer-facing role i think um probably the person who takes on that role would probably have to be somebody who's very familiar with the platform itself, at least to begin with, to kind of retrain what, what that would mean.
3: I mean, I don't know. Like if you think about customer needs, right? And, you know, like it, a customer who's paying for a product application is going to be a little different than someone who's sort of relying on it to get their job done. But in a lot of ways, other than that, you know, that transaction, it's exactly the same. They, they have wants and needs. that's either met, by what's currently offered isn't it, or is not. If it's not, you know, they want it fixed and they want to know when. Right. And it, I, I think that really could just sort of, you know, really translate really well. And then you, of course, like any product team, you're gonna to have to, you know, partner with your engineering team, in which case this is, you know, it'd be the platform engineering team. So sort of translate that into a technical scope and a and a roadmap so that you can actually deliver. So it's I think it would be handy the more you knew about the platform and and the overall workflows. but I also think that you could probably step in if you're a traditional product owner um, in the application space, I think most of it would translate
0: yeah as long as you you know just too used to actually just doing things to please the customers because I, th- mm-hmm. I think this isn't a, this is a matter of pleasing the customers this is a matter of doing doing the right thing for, for the application
2: and everybody as a whole. It's the transition period that's the hardest, which is you know, Right now, everyone's so used to, you know, hey, we need this, go do it. You have two weeks. Like you said, you know, the toss it over the fence model. Hey, I didn't tell you about it, but we're going live in two weeks. Hey, oh, we need this thing. Great. Now, you know, we solve everyone's problem. Everyone's happy, but we don't train it. But it's during that transition period of, you know, having to say, no, 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 I need to know early so I can build this into my platform and then be able to deploy it, you know, in a timely manner or enable you guys to deploy it. You know, and that's the that's that's the hard part of this process, at least from my experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard the smaller the company is to get there because you know it takes an investment to make this pivot to platform. Um, and if you're you know you're currently doing all those two week requests, your your operational teams don't have time to switch to being a platform company or platform team. Um, and so I think that becomes some of the struggle. So you do have to figure out what the you know what are the soft benefits and what are the hard benefits financially to make a platform team like this and actually think about um, how do I justify the expense? Because the thing is, the reason why product management struggles with how to actually do this is because typical products are funded and they're funded mm-hmm. based on revenue and revenue potential and to- total addressable market of a product feature or product. Um, the platform is harder to make that easy. The connections are, are the connections are there. But they are harder to see. They're not as direct, and so you have to think about, okay, well, if I'm going to go build a authentication service that lives inside of the platform thing. What am I enabling in terms of revenue and adoption? And like, there's a, start, there's a story there, like, oh, you know, faster customer onboarding to single sign-on, faster adoption, faster revenue recognition. That's the mm-hmm. story, but like, it's not, it's not the sexy story. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but it has a tremendous amount of value. Same thing with like notification services, Kubernetes, these things. Like, they all have value, but they're they're just they're not valued directly to the customer, but they natively benefit the customer. And so I think that's the, the reason why it's hard to find product people who understand this yet. Because I think it's still kind of early concept, but it's really a multiplier flywheel where once you get the platform really moving and you can start enabling these things to move much faster, all of a sudden everyone else starts moving faster and customers actually get a lot more benefit uh, more quickly. But it's, it's hard to justify. It's hard to justify to a board. It's hard to justify to a CEO and a CFO and a CTO who hasn't done it before because they're like, you want to spend how much money building platform? What am I getting out of it from terms of revenue? And it's like, well, you won't get it right away, but you'll get it eventually. <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, you got to sell like the cost avoidance and you got to sell, you know, the developer productivity and the, the faster feature iterations and security standardization and improvements. And you, you sort of have to, to take what was simply just a, a revenue conversation and sort of expand it out where revenue is just a portion of the success.
0: Yeah, my my concern is that um, I kind of see the conflict that could arise in that you've got the the customer facing product team and the application engineering team, and then you've got the internal cloud platform team. And one person's asking for one thing because the customers need it, and then the the other team is saying, actually, we can't do that on the timescales you're asking for. And at some point, something kind of has to give. And so I I think what what it really means is that you really need um, sort of very high level executive adoption or buy-in to the to the process and the and the value that it will provide eventually otherwise it'll just be um uh, like a email escalation path you know well bob said he can't do it let's go to bob's boss okay and eventually we're like okay well we put the platform thing aside and somebody okay just jump on this and do it jonathan
3: so the same <laughs> conflict that we have today you mean it, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the <laughs>
0: conflict's already there <laughs> yeah.
2: i mean that's why let go
1: back to my comment about investing right like you while you're building out the platform capabilities for a period of time, you still have to do the heroics, which is kind of the sucky part, right? Like there's this future world that's going to be all platform and API driven and automated and Terraform modules and and really awesome. And yet I still have a dev team who still needs everything in two weeks that they forgot about to tell you about. Um, but as you get more success in this, you can start building on top of it, right? And that's where you say, you know, you want a product leader who can partner with the product leaders in engineering because they have a roadmap that lasts three, four, five, six years in some cases. And they can help you get ahead of that problem. But again, like the first year to year and a half of a platform investment is mm-hmm. hard because you have to serve both needs. You have to serve the current heroics and you have to serve the future need. And so, you know, sometimes you start out really small in platform, like, hey, we're just going to do auth and we're going to build it as a service and we're just going to focus on that because it's easy to understand. And maybe there's some revenue tied to it. Uh, then you you know then you get into more complicated ones like logging as a service. <laughs> That's a little more harder to justify. It has value, but it definitely has no clear tie to revenue. Um, it has tie to customer sat, has a tie to mm-hmm. customer support and making support better. But those are not those are not revenue top line growers.
3: Sure. But compliance and certification as requirements for for certain markets. Like it's you, it's you're right. It's just it is sort of you have to connect extra dots. I think.
2: It's all the ancillary things that you're, you know, helping the Mm -hmm. business do without, you know, cool, it's not actually, you know, money into the bank account, but hey, all these other 12 things that we need to do, they just became exponentially easier because of the logging platform or, you know, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, and it's, it's the fundamental thing that people didn't understand in infrastructure all along, right? Is, well, why does it take you so long to build a server? And you know, back in the day, it was like, well, I had to go order it from Dell. They had to manufacture it. They had to ship it to me. I had to put it in a data center, and you know, you had all these things into it. And then you got faster and faster with virtualization, things like that. But people still expect, like, well, I can just go run to Best Buy and I can pick up a computer right now. Why can't I just do that? Mm-hmm. Or, or my favorite one is, what do you mean? You know, my server on Amazon is running on a a T2 micro. I, my laptop has more RAM and CPU than that thing does. <laughs> you know, but. Uh, those are the challenges you have to deal with in these things is mm-hmm. that people people's expectations don't account for all those things that you have to have but then they'll also be really mad when those things don't work. Like, what do you mean you weren't monitoring the service? Like, well, we rushed it out in two weeks but like, we didn't have time to add all that. That's not good enough.
3: So, yeah. What do you mean the default options, and I ran <laughs> out of CPU credits, uh, means that this app no longer works? Like, yeah! Remember that laptop you were so proud of? Yeah. Good mm-hmm. luck. <laughs>
1: Uh, that was good. Uh, do definitely check this article out. Uh, it's very good. I quite liked it as well as the links to the other articles are quite good as well. Uh, and definitely check it out if you're looking to build a platform team or you're running a cloud platform team that is trying to move to DevOps and DevSecOps and and make your team better. This is a great you know article for food for thought and to kind of get you thinking mm-hmm. in the right direction about you know IT as a service.
3: I think this is where the industry is going to natively go, right? I think this is, you know, we won't have infrastructure jobs. You know, like finding a sysadmin job has been largely replaced by a lot of automation, a lot of a lot of CI C D things. And 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 I think infrastructure management will likely follow a similar thing where it's still needed. We still do system configuration, and administration, we still do all these things, but we do it in a very different way.
2: It's all the toil that Amazon takes out of it. And you know, mm-hmm. as things become, you know, more you know, automated or higher level, you know, a lot of those sysadmin things just aren't necessary anymore. Hey, go put the CD drive, put the, you know, Mm -hmm. server 2000 CD in the thing and go install it Mm -hmm. versus, hey, I need to have an API call that spins me up a Windows AMI that includes already server 2016, already patched. Cool, great, done. You know, it's just going to be the next evolution of all this, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Agreed.
1: Well, thanks, guys. Have another great week, and we'll see you next week here on the Cloud Pod. See you later. Bye. Bye, everybody. And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag theCloudPod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign up instructions.